Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Fab. Right, we're in the last session of the day. I hope everyone's had a brilliant conference. I caught a bit of uh, Jeff Crocker at the end of the last session, just giving a brilliant summary uh, of, of, of where the debate is. Um, I hope that's a, a, an indication of how good the rest of the day has been. And uh, thanks to uh, the IPR, to the Bristol um, uh, Ideas people, you know, and to Jeff and, and everyone at uh, to, and, and the UBI.org team. Um, last session, um, uh, is, uh, is it time for universal basic income? Um, and is, it, is UBI the right response to future needs? That's what we're going to be addressing in this last session. And if it isn't right for future needs, then we've got a bit of a problem. But, you know, I think it is. My, I'm Neil Lawson. I'm from Compass, which is a, a pressure group for a good society, which is focused on not much policy. But we do talk a lot about um, basic income. And we do that because it opens up the whole question of what the good society and the good life is um, and tips everything onto the table. Um, and the other thing that the reason that why we like EBI is because it isn't about the humiliation of the people of the most vulnerable people in our, in our society. And anything that does that is a good thing by compass. And so we've been working with Jeff at EBI. We've been working with the people at Bath. And we've also got our own basic income conversation um, to begin to you know, develop this, you know, in communities, in sectors and in different places. So is basic income the right response to future needs? Um, to help us answer that question, we've got four brilliant, amazing speakers who, who I know well and love to death. The first one is Paul Mason, who you'll all know is a journalist, writer, filmmaker, activist, etc., whose most recent book um, I've read and talked to Paul about, How to Stop Fascism, History, Ideology, Resistance. And, you know, uh, if we had basic income, I think we might, you know, be on the route to creating some of the social and economic and cultural foundations to stop fascism. So Paul will be going first. He'll be followed by, um, in the order I've got here, here, and I don't think it matters too much, Claire McNeil, who is um, Associate Director of, of Work and Wealth and the Welfare State at the IPPR, brilliant um, uh, institution, which is coming out with so much progressive stuff. So great to have you here, Claire, and look forward to what you've got to say. Um, we've got Kate Soper, um, who I've known for, for years, and uh, is a brilliant uh, uh, academic who makes us think about, again, what the good society and the good life is with her alternative views of what hedonism is. And if we want a basic income, then I think we've got to shift to a different conversation about what the good life and the good society is. And we've also got the wonderful Andrew Fisher, who was uh, part of the, uh, the team leading the Labour Party between 2015 and 2019, helped write some great manifestos, um, which did contain UBI, and did some great work to push that debate and is now kind of writing in the guardian etc etc so um, um let's take you every let's take you in that order paul claire kate and andrew um so paul over to you first is ubi going to meet our future needs well thank you for that neil um and i'm sorry i didn't catch quite a lot of the conference um it sounds like it's been brilliant um so for me there are there are three um, there are three things we we probably have to do, one we definitely have to do in the 21st century. The, the definitely is zero net carbon and the total modal changes that go alongside that to 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 de completely decarbonize the economy. That that is mandatory, and I think it comes in a list, you know, of priorities before UBI. The other is 
mandatory. We have to fight for social justice and redistribution. And there are, uh, in my PQ article about post-capitalism, I, I point out that you could, if you wanted to, um, completely ignore the kind of post-capitalist UBI agenda and try and do uh, social just justice and redistribution as Labour is trying to do it, and many social democratic parties are trying to do it through, through work, um, through a decarbonized work economy. Um, but the reason I'm pessimistic about being able to do that is I just think, first of all, capitalism has changed and there are now, um, instead of one uh, channel of extraction of, of surplus, surplus value, uh, i.e. work, as existed for the 250 years of industrial capitalism, there are now many channels through which capitalists take value out of our lives. One is work, one is rent, one is financial extraction, financial exploitation, and another one is digital extraction. Uh, the consumption in its own way, you could, you could argue as well. Now, given that, if you want a social justice program, that then then if you, if like Rachel Reeves or even Boris Johnson, you're trying to do it through redistribution through higher wages and work, you're pushing against uh, the headwind that digital technology is creating. Um, even though we've got an artificially created labour shortage in the United Kingdom, I think globally it is it is provable in the advanced economies. Um, the digital technology pushes towards a situation where mass decisive automation becomes possible if we want it to happen. And I am somebody who wants it to happen. I think we need to move beyond utopias based on work uh, because capitalism isn't going to hang around um, in a kind of stable state as we try and do these these. Uh, the climate imperative and the social justice imperative. It is, it, it is, I think, catastrophically failing to mutate and develop in response to the rapidly changing potential of information technology. As I argue in the book, I just think um, it, it, both spontaneously and through um, the projects that we pursue, we could eradicate work, we could eradicate necessary labor time. Um, or, or certainly dramatically reduce it. Um, I don't think that's a, a totally spontaneous program and a process, but it's something that um, is the premise from which I would work. Now, in other words, in the 21st century, we're going to have to de-link work from wages. We're going to have to find new ways of people surviving that aren't dependent on compulsory work in the marketplace. Personally, I think the easiest part of the UBI agenda to graft on to the traditional social democratic uh, agenda is universal basic services, because um, Jonathan Portes and the IPPR report on this, I think proved fairly conclusively, you get more bang for your buck. Since books are still hanging around at the beginning of a transition process, we have to be, be prepared to do that. In the longer term, I don't see UBI as a, as a alternative uh, welfare system, an alternative social justice system. I see it as a transitional measure to move to to move um, from a situation where everybody has to do compulsory work to a situation where nobody has to do much compulsory work at all. And so, for me, UBI is, a, is, is temporary; it's not a permanent solution. But it'll take us the best part of a of a generation to achieve it. That's where UBI sits for me. It doesn't sit at the kind of front end of a social justice 
and redistribution program, it sits somewhere like Soviet planning used to sit in the 20th century for people who wanted to do transitions through Soviet style planning. Uh, and I think it would, you know, if we hear from Claire next, I mean, you know, we can get into this in the questions, Claire, but, you know, we heard at the Labour Party conference last week, the centrality of work, you know, uh, that is, you know, the contribution society. This is running completely counter to, it seems to me, to the universalism of, 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 of UBI. Um, but anyway, so is it something that's going to meet, you know, help us meet our future needs? Claire, over to you. Thanks, Neil, and thanks to the organisers. It's um, it's fantastic to be joining this panel. So, three main reflections from me. Um, firstly, I think you know we'd all agree that the focus on the UBI reveals the, the weaknesses of the welfare state within many um, advanced countries, such as the UK. It's really interesting, I think, that support for the UBI is stronger in countries where people have the perception that the welfare state is broken and that labour markets are not functioning properly. So around 50% of people in this country support the introduction of a UBI, at least in principle. And we also see that in Eastern European countries, post-socialist uh, countries. Support is weaker, though, in countries that do have a comprehensive, more generous um, social security system, like in Germany, Switzerland, uh, and of course in Scandinavia. So I think the swell of support for a UBI is a response to many things, but it is definitely a response to our residualized welfare system and the rise in insecure and, and precarious employment, as, as Paul's just talked about. Clearly, that is a product of our of labour market reforms, which began in this country in the 80s and saw employment protections reduced um, and, and the, the privatisation of key aspects of, of the welfare system. And I think we saw this very clearly in the pandemic with the priority that was given to forms of financial support that underpinned the market. You know, for example, to businesses, workers and homeowners in contrast to, to renters, low income families and the, the unemployed. So I think one of the most persuasive arguments for a UBI is the need to be resilient and to move swiftly in the face of shocks. Um, having some kind of pre-existing structure in place could help avoid the sharp distinction that we saw, for example, between uh, those who are in work and were supported by the furlough scheme and those who were out of work um, reliant on um, universal credit. Another really persuasive argument is the impact of technological change on the labour market, which um, Paul has just mentioned today, and I'm sure was, was much discussed um, today, particularly for younger people, there's a need to consider the role of non-work forms of income, such as UBI, in this context. But for me, just lastly, I think the question the UBI debate really poses for me is how universal should our welfare state be and how generous should our social security system be? And we would argue that we need more universalism and less means testing, but there are a number of ways of, of achieving that. Uh, we've argued for a minimum income guarantee, so a universal guarantee delivered through a targeted payment which sets a minimum acceptable standard of, of living, which is linked to the minimum income standard, which is a measure of what people need uh, to, to secure a decent standard of, of, of living. It's not a universal basic income, but it, but importantly, it does carry a far lower financial burden because as well as investing in social security to really address future needs, to come to the, the, the question that we've been posed, and we do need to invest more in collective risk pooling. So investing in public services, whether that's in relation to social care, childcare, um, 
or training and skills. So fundamentally, yes to more universality in our welfare system and investment in public services, and yes to considering the role of non-work forms of income uh, alongside this. But crucially, this needs to be achieved in ways which can be publicly financed and which can secure popular consent. Follow, follow up. And I mean, do you think the Labour Party is getting closer to that universalism and generosity or you know or, or not i think to be honest it's too it's too early to tell um i think that i think that there's certainly reflectiveness to arguments for that um, and there's been you know, encouraging signs when it comes to the minimum guarantee which are a bit more uh, which are a bit more incrementalist um uh, but yeah i think it's 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 probably too too early to tell at this point Okay, bit like the bit like the French Revolution. Um, uh, okay, um, Kay, over to you. It's, it's, I really like this kind of like big picture from Paul. You know, getting more focused on the kind of policy area. Over to you, from Claire. Now, over to you, Kay. Take us out big again in terms of what does this mean for the kind of lives we want to live. Okay, Neil. Thanks for that, and um, to the organisers for allowing me to have an opportunity to talk about this. Is UBI the way to provide for future needs? Well, I guess how we answer will depend in part on how we construe future needs and indeed on whether we're talking about needs in the most basic sense or about the conditions of future flourishing and gratification of a more complex kind. My own view, and it coincides much of the science now on climate change, is that there can be no sustainable global order without greater equality, both between and within nations, and that this will require radical social economic changes, especially in affluent societies, including, importantly, a reduction in work, and hence the provision of some kind of citizen's income, or UBI. Less work and income is likely to be available anyway because of automation. But we also, I think, have to rein in productivity. We begin to think in terms of a transition to a post-growth economy and way of living which in turn will demand a kind of cultural revolution in our thinking about the real nature of prosperity. What is it that we want to foster in the name of living well? In this sense, I see ecological crisis as an opportunity to move beyond a work-centered understanding of identity purpose and self-fulfillment to one that revolves around more self-chosen ways of spending time and energy. I follow Andre Gortz, a seminal, seminal thinker in this area, in recognising that we can't and won't want, I think, to eliminate work altogether. But we do need to move beyond the culture of the work ethic, with its stigmatising of the unemployed and its lingering sense that only those in work are deserving of a living wage. As Gortz himself put it, we need to, I quote, rest life away from the commercial imaginary and its total employment model. We need to, I believe, to think of UBI funding as allowing for slower and more hybrid ways of working. The return maybe of artisanal methods could coexist with state-of-the-art green technologies. They are also, I think, compatible with communally owned enterprises and cooperatives in which labor is no longer subject to the imperative of maximizing profit by reducing labor time. 
this more complex vision of the work-life balance should be reclaimed as an integral component of an avant-garde political imaginary rather than dismissed as folk politics stuck in pre-modern social relations. But I do recognize that UBI funding is a site of considerable tensions regarding its purpose and impact, where the right defends it as increasing productivity through releasing time for entrepreneurial creativity and see it as an alternative to welfare funding. The moderate left view it as a supplement to welfare and as lessening inequalities. And those like myself more aligned with the degrowth movement advocated as encouraging a shift from GDP measures of well-being and from viewing efficiency as time saved in production rather than as time spent on life-enhancing activities. And just as there's a right-wing dismissal of UBI as money for doing nothing, so there are fears on the left that it would simply lead to more shopping, thus doing little to reduce environmental damage. And there are similar divisions, of, of course, about its funding. If that's done by eco-taxes, then this could lock UBI into eco-damaging forms of production. If it's by taxing wealth, it makes provision dependent on maintaining inequality. So I, I think I share these reservations on funding and also the concerns that UBI in affluent societies may do little to adjust global inequalities or reduce the transfer of natural resources from richer to poorer zones, like looking at issues on a more global uh, scale. So I suppose my view is that overall, UBI can only work within a radically altered economy and value system, to which, of course, I suspect many will just say, uh, dream on. Thanks, thanks, Kate. Um, uh, everything starts with a dream, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. I don't know any idea that's ever started without, you know, first being a dream and first being impossible. And the fine line between what's impossible one day and possible the next is, uh, mm. as we've seen over the furlough and this government giving out huge wads of money and finding the magic money tree, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, uh, uh, Andrew, maybe bring us slightly back down to earth again as we kind of, you know, move in and out. You know, you know, where do you see the debate, you know, politically around, you know, progressives and the left, you know, or not just the left, you know, shaping up to these future demands? Yeah, I mean, look, I'll, I'll confess, I'll start with a confession. I'm a, I'm a bit of a UBI sceptic, but in the genuine sense of that word sceptic, I'm not anti, I'm, I'm sceptical. Um, I do think there's a better alternative, but before I kind of come on to that, I want to look at the kind of areas of agreement because I like to build consensus. Um, I think there's a kind of agreement at the moment that social security doesn't actually do what it says on the tin and provide social security. Um, we need to increase the level of benefits. We need a less punitive, uh, more humane system with less stigma attached. And I think we need more universality to do that. Um, those two things combined also provide people with more autonomy. They empower people rather than degrade them. And I think the last Secretary of State with responsibility for Social Security to actually do any of that was Barbara Castle, who coincidentally was born on this day. Um, every other minister since, I think, has either attacked people on Social Security or attacked the levels of Social Security themselves or more likely done both. Um, so to perhaps to use the Prime Minister's phrase, uh, we need to build back Barbara, perhaps, in, in a way. Um, look, Labour Party conference, I think, was quite underwhelming on a lot of levels this year. 
but one of the highlights for me was actually on social security um and johnny reynolds speech which got virtually no media coverage but i'm just going to quote a line from it because i actually think it was pretty good he said we want a system that supports people to live the lives they want not one that tries to catch people out and take away their support and i think for a lot of people that will resonate because anybody who's interacted with the social security system over the last 10 years knows that exact that is exactly what it is i remember interviewing um some pcs members uh, the trade union that represents uh was in the dwp and who worked in job centers and they said i came into this job to help people now i feel like i'm made to trip them up and that i think is a sad reflection that was about 2013 14 so the height of kind of osborne's austerity um but not much has changed since obviously um you know johnny reynolds is actually somebody who's open minded to ubi but i don't think it will become uh labor policy it's worth noting as you i think you mentioned at the beginning neil that there was the demand for a pilot on ubi in the last labor manifesto and in fact the welsh labor government under mark craigford is committed to setting up a uh, a pilot scheme in wales at the moment but historically ubi has been backed by the right um milton friedman backed it for example i mean i don't think that's a clinching counter argument by the way um but it is worth reflecting i think why people like milton friedman backed it in the first place and indeed the adam smith institute in the uk uh, backs it too not as a liberating thing for individuals but uh, basically as market support a cash payment for citizens to go and create markets in healthcare and education and to abolish state provision that's what they want now of course there is the other side of that which is uh, a kind of libertarian left position on ubi which was put forward for example um by the green party in the 2015 election they called for a citizens income now that was pitched at 72 pounds a week which you know with a total cost of 280 billion pounds uh, which is about double the social security budget at the moment more or less um and that included converting all current social security payments into that ubi that citizens income which is a problem because that's a lower benefit rate than many disabled people with severe uh, disabilities or extra needs extra support needs get at the moment it doesn't account for housing payments and other things like that and it's only a very minimal increase even for people on job seekers allowance or on carers allowance so it's not the kind of transformational uh, level it would need um so universalism yes but it has to be needs based too and i think we sometimes get into a conflict between universalism being targeted uh and universalism versus mean being means tested and i think we have to uh separate that out i mean there are experiments and i think i am sympathetic to uh in times of crises there being this kind of system in place i mean you look across to the us a similar related scheme uh Biden's covid relief bill you know kind of the proposal originally for 1400 uh dollars uh, in a check to every person in the US who earns less than 75000 dollars a year um it's kind of a stimulus package rather than a, a universal basic income it's a one off it's not permanent um and i think there is a case for those sort of one off programs they're kind of classic keynesian demand management in a way um mark drakeford's pilot in wales which I, i mentioned at the beginning at the moment we haven't seen the full details of it but what's being discussed is a pilot aimed at care leavers um who are you know perhaps one of the most excluded groups in society to try and help them in particular I mean, mark drakeford described it as a sort of asset based welfare type experiment using some of the ideas from ubi so we'll actually see how close it is to ubi when we learn more but it's not necessarily going to be ubi and of course the welsh government doesn't have any autonomy over social security budgets so it's having to find the money for this pilot out of other budgets um 
the worry I, I think as well for people who are genuinely interested in looking at this is over what time frame that would be in order to judge its merits or demerits. Um, but we've seen pilots in other countries, in other parts of, of the world, but no full implementation. And I think that is because it's not the most effective or efficient at achieving the desired outcomes. Now, just briefly, some would argue, and I think Paul and to an extent Kate did as well, that the disruption of technology, of climate change, etc., means we will come to need UBI in the future. Um, that what we understand as crisis now will effectively become the norm tomorrow and we will, therefore UBI's time will come. I'm not sure I agree with that. I think I'm probably in the same position that Kate Bell was, who spoke earlier in the in the session today, um, who said, you know, technology creates jobs just as much as it destroys them. And I think that's historically been true. Um, perhaps that's that's wrong. And, and this time it will be different, but I'm not wholly convinced. Um, so I did say I, I, I'll just very quickly, if I can, Neil, still got time to sketch out a, a very sorry, one minute kind of alternative. I think it's based on some of the things that Claire said, which is a, a minimum income guarantee. Um, based at the at minimum income standard, which is something the Joseph Roundtree Foundation has put together for many years, um, and a jobs guarantee or jobs and training guarantee, so that rather than a universal cash wage, which is effectively what UBI represents, what we need is a kind of a more social wage that enables people uh, to train and get on, because there are so many barriers for people to do that, both price and supply of training in this country. Um, I think if you look at the Joseph Roundtree Foundation uh, minimum income standard is currently £227 a week for a single person. Now, that might sound like a lot when you consider that as of today, the standard allowance in universal credit is going down to about £74 a week. But if you look at, say, Ireland or, or Germany, you know, they have far higher levels. I mean, the main unemployment rate, uh, unemployment benefit rate in Ireland is £183 a week, absolutely worlds apart from what we used to here. Um, and I think there are other things that need to go alongside that as well that we could talk about, whether that's rent controls, the building of council housing, strength and trade union rights, universal free childcare. All of those things, to me, fit with a better model uh, that more effectively tackles the issues I think uh, that I think we need to address. OK, super, super helpful, Andrew. And I think, you know, as ever with these conversations, there is a kind of there's a journey to be had and i think you know all of you ex have expressed an interest in uh, uh universalism and greater generosity and i think different people are on different places on that journey and i think it's you know one of the questions is you know how do we all continue that and test this out and if we all you know no one knows exactly what the answer to a post beverage uh, uh welfare system is but i think you know i think there's lots of commonality that's been expressed um and lots of under underlying value sentiment which gives us something to build on even if we end up in different um uh, policy positions we'll come on to some of the, some of the questions in the chat um uh, in a in a minute but let's just do a quick, um, you know, go back in the, in the same way. I mean, Paul, it seems to me that this question of our relationship to work and to labour seem to be absolutely, you know, central about what side of the fence you're on in terms of the dignity, centrality of labour. And, and Starmer made a big pitch on that following on from the kind of Pradas, you know, dignity of labour, you know, kind, kind, kind of book. I mean, do you think, you know, you know, if we are to move to that more universal, whatever, whether it's UBI, minimum income guarantee, it's going to require a change of government, you know, and that is, uh, at the very least, is going to require Labour-led government. You know, uh, you know, do we think, do you, do you think that Labour's, you know, going to move away from being Labour? I, I, not in the short term. It's, it's moved slightly more back towards being Labour 
uh, because it's moved towards the foundational economy approach under Rachel Reeves. But what what I'd like to come back on is is the is the I think the Labour's fundamental problem, social democracy's fundamental problem, is it's working without a theory of exploitation. It has no theory of how capital gets bigger and how why we've got the lowest wage share um, for, for a century. Um, um, if you have a theory, and I, my theory may be wrong, but my theory is that that capital has moved on from simply extracting value in the production process. It now, it, you know, it is, of course, value is extracted in the production process. There is a huge financialized extraction process alongside it, where individual people are servicing credit cards, um, con consumer debt, uh, student loans, auto loans, valorizing capital directly, they are also directly valorizing the top 10 monopolies in the in the world, eight out of 10 are tech monopolies, and they're being valorized by people's behavior and the data that, it, that emanates from it. Now, if that's your theory of exploitation, what you, what you then have to say is if you want to make inroads into capital, you can't only do it through, not one, you can't only do it through work, through changing the, the terms of exploitation, good though it is to change the terms of exploitation. So, how does that, how does that um, kind of, how does that kind of devolve into the concrete? It devolves into the concrete by saying, what would empower a person throughout their life entering the workforce now is not simply if they had a trade union able to bargain for them and raise their, you know, take raise the wage share um, and, and suppress the profit share via work. It would also be that they were able to survive and negotiate the power structures created by finance, by cons consumption, by prosumption, by, by uh, rent-seeking business models, and, and above all, by the tech monopolies. If they had greater, greater autonomy over a, an income that wasn't derived primarily from any of these uh, sources, but indeed was a straightforward, socially negotiated form of redistribution. Now, that on its own doesn't, does, it just begins the argument. But it's why, um, it's why I think that, I, I, I will certainly say, as long as work exists, it needs to be, it needs to have dignity. It, we need to fight for dignity in it. But the reason why so much undignified work exists is because the, to, the, to capital, that work is not primarily valorizing. It's there. I would say, to put it crudely, the reason capital needs lots of people to be baristas or hand car washers or you know, many other of the things that David Graeber you know, sort of labeled bullshit jobs is so they can have a credit card and a mobile phone. If they have a credit and a card and a mobile phone, they can be multiply extracted. The work is not the main thing. So we're now in, in a societal level negotiation with capital or battle with capital and laborism just is, is mono-focused on the workplace or is even more mono-focused on the workplace as as the, as the site of redistribution and that's where i think we need to move beyond it and and claire do you, do you buy into that argument yeah i, I do and i think to, to some extent it, it is being recognized i think there is um a move to take very seriously the need to think about non-work forms of income and you know, a UBI is one of those um, shared wealth funds, um, yeah. something IPPR proposed in its Economic Justice Commission 
um, a sort of universal inheritance payment for, for young people. Lifelong learning funding is, is, is you know, a, a, akin to that. There are other forms of sort of non-work support. So I think it is being, I think it's definitely being recognised and taken seriously. And we we obviously need to think about how we're going to, how we're going to fund these forms of support you know there, there are a, a wide variety of options but that's kind of where the debate gets to i think and and uh, kate in the um reinhardt in the questions has asked do you do you think that human right that, that human rights to live in dignity has practical implications you know do you see do you see uh, something like a citizen's income as being part of a a human right to, to live in dignity um, yes, I, I, I do, I think. I mean, I, I think that what we... I mean, I also, I think I agree with what um, Paul is saying about the need for a certain kind of autonomy, in a way, of the, um, the forms of work and dependency that have been created to date through the capitalist economy and are now sort of dominating all the possible areas of our life and consumption. And I think that UBI funded independently, as it were, of, of that um, systemic structure would be very important to restoring the possibility of moving, of, of seeing our identity, our, our purpose in life, our, our sense of prosperity and of what we really think is important, why we're producing all this wealth and so on rethinking some of that and being allowed to actually function on more intrinsically valuable goods and simply money making and consumerist forms of you know of um, consumption um, and i think it's only through the provision of that kind of income that we we kind of open up a space for rethinking the purposes of our economy moving away i mean at the moment it seems to me both the mainstream parties are still really arguing about uh, about means towards a common set of ends of gdp growth um full employment or as much employment as possible um welfare in forms of that are still dependent on work and so on uh and what we need, I think, now is to start thinking more about the ends. What are, you know, what are the purposes of all this activity? Um, and that becomes very important for the kind of reason that I think um, Reinhard Huss is also talking about here, namely that I do believe it's not possible to continue to with, with, with a growth economy. Um, we need to actually reduce production, and that's why I think even... A, and, you know, one can't put one's reliance on endless technology producing work because I think in the last analysis we need to be able to move, not immediately, not tomorrow, but after, you know, we need to think of a transition to a post, a, 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 to, a, to a way in which we're no longer producing and consuming so much. And that's essential, I think, to, econo to ecological well-being ultimately. Yeah, and I was looking at the contribution society, and I was thinking, contribute what? I mean, that, that the overriding thing seemed to be work, but why not care, love, compassion, a whole load of things that don't yeah. actually destroy the environment? Um, yeah. Andrew, I mean, going picking up on the 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 the, the, the gauntlet that, that 
pull through down. I mean, what do you think are the political implications of that exploitation via finance and via data? Because we know how to organise politically in the workplace. It, you know, so if you want something to answer that, you know, that problem, you know, and give people more autonomy, do we, does that mean we have to think about how to organise to get that in those data financial places? And we're not very good at that, are we? Uh, no, we're not. And I think it opens up big questions about ownership, frankly. Um, and I think that's something that, uh, you know, the political consensus at the moment currently isn't that keen to tackle, as I think we saw um, just last week. Um, and, you know, that's a, that's a real problem because you're not going to get these kind of, you know, whether it's the kind of uh, shared wealth fund, whether it's the sort of uh, employee ownership funds that we proposed in the last manifesto, it's those things you have to tackle the ownership of these big um, power bases within society, whether you want to call those work-related or, or, or you know, divorce them from that. And I agree, the financialized economy is increasingly divorced from work. I agree with Paul on that. Um, so how you tackle that has to be thrown. We had a huge, I think, opportunity after the banking crash to really tackle that with the financial sector, and we lost it. You know, we missed that opportunity. Climate change, I think, provides another opportunity. And I think in terms of how we change how our economy is powered, how our lives are powered, um, again, is a huge opportunity to tackle those questions of ownership. Uh, and if you look at what Norway did with its North Sea oil and compare it with what we did with our North Sea oil, another one of those conjunctures where we missed an opportunity in the UK, um, they did uh, create a sovereign wealth fund, which has you know, proved very beneficial for the Norwegian economy. And I think you know, those sort of questions have to be wrestled with, um, but they do raise big fundamental questions that politicians, I think, find very um difficult to take on and don't have the confidence to take on or not very many of the mainstream politicians at the moment do uh, so in a sense you know I look at it from quite a pragmatic position it's like theoretically yes but practically how and I think that's the big question that isn't being answered and that's why you know we are in this state I think economically and politically a, a kind of paralysis since the banking crash in the UK we haven't had um, a solution to that I mean you can argue you know, Corbynism, McDonaldism, you know, that the kind of socialist term within the Labour Party was an attempt to answer some of that. Um, but we seem to be retreating from that again. And I think that's what worries me, I, I think, the most. And, and Claire, back, back to you. I mean, you know, we've got climate, tech, precariousness, care, etc., etc. I mean, you're at the, you know, thankfully, you're at the kind of practical end of trying to devise policy for a, you know, a, you know, for some kind of change, let's be honest, let's kind of some kind of change government. I mean, do you think, you know, uh, how do we get them into a place that's kind of politically feasible, um, you know, electable, but, but then desirable in the sense of opening up this space to address all of these huge crises and challenges that are coming down, you know, the, 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 the track. Oh, that's a really tough question, but I, but I think we need both desirable and feasible in order to, to get us on the journey. Do you think, is that your minimum income guarantee? Is that going to start that process? I, I think that's definitely part of it. I mean, I think, you know, we need to, the discussion's about taxation to an extent, isn't it? You know, who, who, who do tax how um, and, and what are the implications there? And that's yeah, very difficult for any political party to do. We clearly tax um, a lot less than other European countries, and that's why our public spending is, is lower. Um, universality, more universality in public services would arguably help achieve more consent, so more kind of buy-in to 
welfare system, but look, it's incredibly difficult. We've got political coalitions that are entrenched, you know, because there's um, much of the welfare spending currently it goes on on older people, um, you know, younger people, working families, all of those sorts of the challenges around childcare, for example. It's very difficult to get significant spending in those areas um, for, for for any political party. So. Um, yeah, you know, I think it's it's very tied up. Um, not just it's not just about policy challenges, but they're tied up with these political coalitions that are very entrenched when it comes to the welfare state. And reform is very difficult in that context. And and Paul, you know, going back to you know, we're, we're talking about um, uh, kind of external economic and, and environmental and social challenges. But going back to you know your your recent work, there is a political challenge here as well. If we don't create the systems of security and freedom, it's not as if things can't get worse politically. You know, unless we put in place the foundations to give people you know full and fulfilling lives. Uh, I, yes, but I don't think UBI or even UBS are are the the key um, the, the weapons we're going to use to. You know, placate and palliate the, the far right and right wing populism. Indeed, there is an argument. You know, if you look at the way the Finns have, have uh, pitched and and done their their UBI, their UBI there's a, the countries that that end up with the UBI first are going to hit the very hard the argument over who gets it in the, in the sense of what where does where do the borders where are the borders drawn inside Labour, in fact. What, what I sense as being part of the backlash against universalism is, is that the more universalism to do, the greater you have to define the borders uh, or, you, or you have to make things contributory. That's why Johnny Reynolds in indeed in his, uh, in his uh, uh, The House magazine interview caused a furore for suggesting we might have to go towards contributory uh, benefits. So I, I think, however, for me, the... The, the the attraction or the sort of the 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 thin end of the wedge I want to begin with um, with is, is this it's the concrete offer if you could have all all city level transport for free not cheap for free long distance transport transport you pay per mile average per mile free transport um free healthcare really free at this in the sense of mental health in the sense of physiotherapy. Um, if you could have um, transport, health, education to degree level, and then housing, a right to housing, you know, how much wages would you need? That's the issue. What what would be the, the spur to accumulate and consume and destroy uh, the, the planet's wealth? And I, I think it, that's the, way, the the kind of new Fabianism I would like to inject into the left of of it having enough to live on. What the other thing is, if you if you had that plus a live, I would accept even a livable benefit system. So not a UBI, a, a really universal and non-penalized benefit system. How many diseases of poverty would you eradicate? If it was absolutely clear that in this society, you can never starve, your children will never go hungry. Um, how many people's mental health would, would and physical health would immediately rebound? So I think those are the, those are the low-hanging fruit of a kind of new beverage, and it's it's way short of UBI. The UBS itself delivers quite a lot of the short-term, thin end of the wedge benefits. 
So we've got um, we've got about kind of eight minutes left or something before we we, we wrap the session and and we hand over to the wonderful Nick Pierce to to, to close the, the conference down. Let's go round um, everyone again and maybe start with you, Kate. You know, I think the the, the you know the proposition just given by Paul was fantastic. It's kind of you know des, you know desirable and probably feasible, but but it goes back to your point that we have to turn you know. Uh, the conveyor belt of the, you know, the, the, the you know, um, uh, you know, the, the view that the good society, you know, is, is a treadmill, you know, isn't, you know, Galbraith's view is one that we have to blow apart because enough's never enough, is it? So how do, you know, bring us back to how do we stop that kind of treadmill society, whereas enough is never enough and UBI or universal basic services or whatever will never meet the demands because we're always being told we need more. Well, as, as Claire and others pointed out, I think it's extremely difficult. However, I mean, I think if we don't find some means of rethinking um, both the uh, supposed inevitability of the growth economy and the idea that we constantly can command more in the way of consumption and ever higher living standards as defined currently in consumerist ways, then I think we are heading for ecological barbarism eventually. I mean, I think, I think, I mean, I'm not, I mean, I, th I think that the sort of what, what um, Paul's kind of outlined as a, as a less than UBI, but, you know, provision of a much more, you know, seriously social democratic kind of welfare system is it would be a, a great beginning to allow people to feel more security uh to have more time and opportunity i think to uh participate politically to develop a more republican side after decades in which we've just been treated as as basically consumers rather than citizens and that this could be the beginnings of some kind of cultural revolution uh, in our thinking about the what I would call the politics of prosperity. I mean, I think there are real anxieties now about where climate change and environmental degradation are taking us. Not tomorrow, but in the next hundred years. Um, I think there's huge anxieties about the gaping abyss between the wealthy and the, the poorest, both nationally and internationally. And I think young people are really seriously concerned about the future in some of the most fundamental ways. Like, do we have children? I mean, what, how are we going to kind of survive in the next? How are they going to survive? I mean, this is this is now coming home for our children and their children. <clears throat> These things together, I think, could feel more of a a mandate of some kind for much more radical e economic change than we've hitherto seen as possible within our society. Um, but it would need a political formation, obviously, of some kind to represent that and to be able to kind of respond to an electoral mandate of that kind. But that's, maybe that's, you know, too optimistic. Um, what we, what, what I would say on a slightly 
you know, to kind of back that kind of optimism in a way, is that people are now talking about degrowth. There is a, a, a degrowth movement uh, yeah. campaigning. There, there is a lot going on in the academy around the, the formation of a degrowth strategy, ultimately, of how to transition to it and so on. And I know that's come up in the last five years, I would say like UBI has almost. I mean, so, so you know, ideas that were regarded as completely batty, you know, five years ago are now actually being much more seriously yeah. thought about. Yeah, it's definitely gone from the margins to, to, to the mainstream. Mm. Claire, what's the, what's the one thing that you think is going to drive, you know, whether it's universal basic income or minimum income guarantee, what's the one thing that's going to drive this onto the, you know, the agenda of, of the two main parties, you think? Well, I think, you know, the, it would be really easy on a day like today when we're far away from the, the sort of living income that Paul described, you know, the £20 cut to universal credit, which is deeply grim. Um, but but the, I think there are reasons for optimism. One of the, the um, comments was about the uh, child tax credit um, enhancement in the US and that's achieved kind of widespread political support. You know, that is a consequence of the pandemic. There is a moment that's been opened up by the pandemic it is a moment that could pass quite quickly but i think um certainly as cases you know more change seems seems possible than 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 they have done um five years ago political force and and what kate was saying about opening up new political forces and in in the questions people have been asking about you know should we have electoral reform in order to allow you know the space for these kinds of you know interests to be uh, but you know, better represented. You know, is that is that the question really about how we develop the, the forces and forms of representation to put these kind of issues on the table? So is that to Claire or to me? Sorry. Sorry, that was to you, Andrew. All oh, right. Okay. Um, sorry, I thought you were on mute at the beginning there, so I might have missed it. Um, yeah, I think that is part of it. I think the other thing actually that's going to be. Uh, cause political reform in this country is the generation below me. I'm 42 years old, nearly, uh, in, in next month. And, you know, the generation below me are going to force this because they are not getting the rewards that they were promised. They're not getting improved living standards. They're not getting better paid jobs. They're not going to be able to afford housing, especially if they live in a city or want to. So those things are going to change. You know, that, that demographic is going to grow up without the advantages of good pension. You know, nobody, nobody younger than me is going to be in a defined benefit pension scheme virtually. Uh, you know, they're not going to own their own home by the time they're 35 and have the mortgage paid off, you know, before they get to retirement age. Those things aren't going to happen. And I think those sort of things are going to force different questions onto the agenda. If we are then hit by different shocks and they seem to be occurring more rapidly, whether that's the financial crisis, whether it's driven by climate change and, and ecological change, whether it's uh, you know, COVID and pandemics or, or Brexit at the moment, to an extent, you know, those things are going to shape people's uh, political consciousness. And I think you will get the demand for more dramatic uh, political change. And I, I think one of the things that gives me optimism, although obviously, you know, the last five years weren't entirely uh, bountiful in their rewards um, uh, politically for the Labour Party, um, I, I do think the kind of material basis of why that shift in the Labour Party happened is still fundamentally there and at some point has got to be wrestled with you know that cannot be avoided forever uh, and i think you know political reform does need to happen for all kinds of reasons i'm in favor of of pr i'm a bit of a convert to that now i used to be very much first past the post but i do think you know that does work and i, I 
probably in this discussion for another day, but probably favour the AMS route that works fairly well in Scotland and Wales. So you keep the constituency link as well. But um, I, I think the real question is, you know, the system just doesn't work at the moment. And the people it works least for are the people who are kind of under 40. And, you know, 10 years, 20 years down the line, they're going to form a political majority and that will shift things fundamentally. And how dramatically that changes basically is dependent on how politicians react today um, in moving us in that direction. But it's inevitable. Um, Paul, over to you for a, a last word on, you know, it, it, what are going to be the key drivers that are going to force, you know, as, a, as I say, whether it's universal basic income, minimum income, minimum income guarantee, universal basic, basic services, services, the same kind of thing. You know, what's, what's going to really push this onto, you know, a, a reluctant political elite? Well, for, for me, it's, you know, Weber uh, said about the origins of capitalism. It wasn't about the emergence of new property relations. It was about the emergence of a new attitude towards money. He said a few young men who inherited money started to think about uh, what they were going to do with it in a different way th than the traditional landed aristocracy. And I think that generation that uh, that uh, we've just heard about there from Andrew is is beginning already to think about the planet as the as the priority and their own well-being think about their obsession with mental health with 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 you know, sexual violence and stuff like this that's no really important to them and i think that if you begin from the human being if you begin from the planet and the human being you you begin to think in a new way about society it is that that leads you to then reprioritize and and and, and it's one of the things that unfortunately is why young people just don't don't, don't join and collectively struggle within trade unions. They think they're thinking in terms of units of the individual and the planet, and that is kind of an unfortunate thing for collectivist era people like me. But I do think it's what's going to drive their radicalism on in demands for solutions. And you, if you, for example, I would say the the popularity of of zero cost university education. I don't just mean uh, paying the fees. I mean paying everything, uh, grants, fees, everything. Is something that people can see has a has a society wide benefit, and it immediately benefits them. That's uh, you know we can only construct social democratic projects out of the actual material interests of the exploited, and and I think that that that's where what gives me hope long term that when that generation matures, they will see the sense of it. But of course, you know the the elephant in the room in this entire discussion, which we haven't concretized in this session, is how, how much it's going to cost and who you're going to raise it from. I see no alternative to a massive tax raise from the, both the wealth and incomes of the rich and a major redistributive program. OK, um, fantastic. And what's really interesting for me is the fact that this debate is being re really crystallised, not in Westminster, not in Whitehall, but in Wales, in Scotland, Andy Burnham, in Manchester, in the UBI labs, uh, in different sectors oh. like oh. Um, You know, that's where the real conversation and debate is taking place. And I think, to, you know, to, to move to something as big and transformative as, 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 as a citizen's income, as basic income, is going to require new forms of political struggle. Um, and it won't be done by the old forms, I think. And so I think that's what's going to make it really interesting. Paul Mason, Andrew Fisher, Claire McNeil, Kate Soper, you've been brilliant. That was a really big conversation. And I think we just about held it together um, uh, well. I think we're going over to, thanks for everyone in the audience for your questions and, and the comments.
Um, I think we're going to go over to um, Nick Pierce now, who's going to make a comment on, you know, just the end of the day to wrap things up. And thank you for everyone's participation in that, particularly the panel. Over to you, Nick, who I think is coming in. Lovely to see you.